Thanks for checking back into the Improv Comedy Connection. I am your host, Witt Schiller, and I am ready to close out Season 1 with a bang. This has been a great ride for me, and I hope it has been for you as well. I've learned a ton, and I've been challenged by each of the great guests we've had so far. So deciding on how to close out the first season would seem like a bit of a challenge. But ultimately, it was pretty easy because today we've got Dave Rozowski. Dave is a veteran, improviser, and actor, and a globetrotting teacher of improv whose persona and presence create a unique perspective on the art form. We touch a little bit on his In the Works book, currently titled A Subversive's Guide to Improvisation, and how it is pulling together his methodology and approach to improv. But here's the thing, Dave's approach to improv is only subversive because we've made improv something to be subverted. Focusing on the simplicity and humanness of the improv experience and process, seasoned with Dave's passion for improv and acting, gets you a new set of improv clothes that can be both revolutionary and reinvigorating to your work. He's got all the street cred you could ever want, and I guess going back to his time at Second City, being at the start of what is now the annoyance, thousands and thousands of students he's inspired, and so on. But it's the experience of Dave Rosowski that matters, so let's share that together in this Season 1 finale episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Well, Dave, thanks again for jumping on the podcast here. I am really, um, you know, I feel like every time I start, I say I'm really excited, because I, I am. <laughs> I, I, I am excited. I've listened to a couple of your episodes, and it's like, you get really excited, and I'm like, I hope he's excited when he talks to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, check that one off. I, I am excited to talk with Dave Rosowski. I I love the the history that you have. I'm really intrigued um, by what I know about your sort of philosophy and approach to improv. I've also got some things that I've been trying to wrap my mind around how a few of the things kind of work together. So I expect to run out of time um, <laughs> with you. Don't we but, all? Yeah, I, I guess I'd like to, though, start. I, I don't want to spend too much time on the quote-unquote origin story. And I, I don't want to just tell war stories either. I kind of want to uh, see how these things impact the art form, because I think that's that's something that you care about. Uh, the craft uh, is important to you. But you had an interesting place to start with Geese Theater Company. Yeah. And um, that was a non-comedic. Um, and not just improv, but can you uh, set the stage for how you got involved in that and what that what that taught you uh, about improv or how it sparked your interest in in the art? I love that you're starting that. That's so fantastic. Uh, this book that I've uh, that uh, I've written, a Subversive's Guide to Improvisation. Uh, when I was in the writing process, I started writing uh, what you call the origin story, and yeah. it it struck me. Uh, it, it really was profound how much Geese Theater Company affected uh, me and the way that I looked at improvisation. Hmm. Uh, it was a, a it is a theater company that performs in in correctional facilities, not just in the United States but also in the United Kingdom. Uh, started by a guy named John Bergman at the university at uh, University of Iowa in Iowa City. Uh, hmm. I was I had just uh, I had just come off of uh, five years at. Northern Illinois University in uh, DeKalb, Illinois, where mm -hmm. I quit improv. I'm sorry, I quit theater for about uh, four years. And when I came back to Chicago, uh, the Chicago theater scene was bloom was exploding. I mean, it was 
on fire. It, mm -hmm. um, every storefront seemed to have a theater company in it. Every uh, uh, there was there was not just the not just storefronts, but I saw a show in an old streetcar barn that was done totally in <laughs> Polish. Um, I watched. Uh, I I was I was cast in a show, The Bakai, where we had you know twelve or fifteen naked nymphs just rolling around each other. That was such profound theater, and my background is in theater. Yeah. So when I uh, actually I did uh, uh, the Baca when it came when I uh, after I left the after I left left Geese Company, but when I came back to Chicago after NIU getting my uh, photojournalism yeah. degree, yeah. Uh, when I came back to Chicago, uh, I auditioned for a show, um, and this is a bit long, but I auditioned for a show, and I thought I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to do I'm not going to do a theater piece. I'm going to do a Lawrence Ferlinghetti poem. So uh, I did a Lawrence Fernand getting poem. It was called uh, Coney Island of the Mine. I get mm -hmm. up and the director said, uh, why would you do that? And I said, I want to do something different. He goes, don't. And uh, <laughs> don't ever do that again. And I was like, okay. Well, that director connected me with John Bergman, who uh, apparently this director saw something in me, connected me with John Bergman, who was the artistic director and founder of Geese Theater Company. And I auditioned to him with him. It was non-comedic mask work, a lot of movement stuff, based on a form that was essentially a board game where two people, uh, one of the two couples get arrested and then you just go from, it's called plague game. And you go from, okay. from, from, uh, uh, from spot to spot to spot. And then you have to have, uh, you have to have uh, visits. Uh, so if you know you and I are a couple and I get busted, I'm in the joint and you're outside of the joint and it's about our the evolution of our relationship and how important it was for to be to communicate and communicate okay. honestly. Now that all that said, yeah. look thinking about it now, what did I get out of it? I got out of it the idea of movement, theatricality, and a major part, which is connecting to your emotions on stage mm -hmm. and being vulnerable enough, courageous enough to express yourself and to know that the story isn't about the story. The story is about the relationship. Uh, and, and, and what I realized there was the genesis of this concept of do you want to be the story or do you want to tell the story? If you want to tell the story, then you get suggestions and you go, once upon a time, there was a plumber and he had to fix a drain in someone's house. If you want to be the story, the story is about the emotional connection that you have. And the story will tell itself if you have a point of view that is emotional. And that's what I got from Geese Company. So when you when you say you would spot to spot, was this like uh, physical rooms that you would go differently or just like cut to different uh, location or a different visit? We lived in a 51 foot school, 1963 International Harvester school bus converted okay. into living conditions. On top of the school bus was the set and the set were three by three boards that that uh -huh. configured into literally a game board. And we would get to the joint uh, of the prison early and we go into what's called the sally port and the sally port is a gate opens up the bus right. comes in they close the gate there's a gate in front of you a bunch of correctional officers dig throughout the entire bus looking for for, for what could be weapons everything yep. that we had was kind of click in place tongue and groove stuff so we had very few moving parts and we would get into this the set a gymnasium a cafeteria and we would just load up we would just construct the set the show would be 45 minutes when it was done we would break down the set put it back in um the correctional officers would have to go through the bus again to make sure that we weren't stealing anything or or, or taking anybody out go through the sally port and then exit it's a young man's game with it's a young yeah man's how game. much how much interaction did you have with the inmates 
Um, a, a good deal. Like later on, we yeah. would do uh, we would do uh, in service in there. So that was the beginning of my creating a material through improvisation. So uh, at these gigs, one of them that I would mention, they would be able to talk to us a little bit. And there was one particular place that I remember, uh, Granite City, Oklahoma. And when we weren't improv when we weren't improvising, when we weren't on the road, we had some downtime. We would go to a, a national park, a state park, a, a truck stop. And we would study up on the what was at that time called the underclass, and we would do we would look at uh, laws and and penal institutions. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I saw wasn't being represented was prison rape. And I remember thinking, I want to I want to bring this up, uh, man on man rape. And I brought it, and uh, we brought it up. And then afterwards, I recall a, an inmate coming up, you know, going, "That was a really good show." It's like, yeah, um, what happened to you? Uh, happened to a friend of mine, like. Oh, really? A friend of yours? Okay, cool. Mm. I'm glad that we can do that. But you really got, to, and, and, and one of the things that I really realized in having a journalism degree was be curious, ask questions, find out about people, really get depth. Right. And, you know, there's certain people that you look at and you go, I know you have a story, but I'm not going to ask you your story because I think that you just told me enough of your story for me to understand what it is that you're talking about. And it also teaches, it taught me empathy. So we did have interactions. And later on when we would uh, we were at Joliet Correctional Center. Uh, or, no, I'm sorry. We were somewhere in the South and we were working on an improvised. They would improvise for us and we would have a story. We would create a story from it and with them create characters and a play and an arc and all that. And we had somebody come in from the University of Illinois. Uh, we flew him in and he was an expert on gossip. And there's a tremendous amount of gossip <laughs> in, in prisons. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's your that's your entertainment for the most part. And we mm -hmm. created a show based around his connection with the, the this sociologist connection with the Yanomama people and these these uh, the incarcerated just ate it up and did this fantastic story and that was before I got into Second City uh, it was the idea of like how do we collaborate how do we create material and that was one of the great ways of creating material and the material was personal and nobody had everybody felt like I have something to offer because I have an opinion and yeah. that's really a foundation of the work that I do as well. Uh, that we come fully prepared. So just a quick pause. The, the Yanomamo people, that's the, is that the Amazonian sort of untouched people group or had been? Yes. Nicely done, Wet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can't re I can't remember whether they are still uh, unreached or not. But well, uh, if they are, I really want to connect with those people. And I think I'll pack some of my bags, my loincloths yeah. and head over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> both of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, when you are improvising in this context, some of it is because you've got a structure and you've got to figure out how to contextualize or just uh, accomplish the structure where not all of the lines are laid out for you. Are you getting training that uh, traces back, though, to the works of uh, Viola Spolin or anyone else? Or is this just kind of learning how to make stuff up along the way based on the experience of doing it? Uh, it's both those things. Uh, I don't know that Bergman ever... No, Big, Bergman Bergman did have a, a pretty dog-eared copy. He, he had a dog-eared copy, actually, that I remember, of um, Keith Johnstone's Impro. I don't really remember seeing him go to Viola's book, but he really went to Keith Johnstone's book a lot. A lot of the work that we did was on the spot. What 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 Because Bergman was a professor of theater, he had a tremendous amount of... 
not just improv training, but he had a lot of movement training. I'm sorry, not just theater training, but a lot of movement training as well. So we would do mm-hmm. uh, Jerzy Grotowski's uh, biomechanics. We would just break our bodies in order to get to a point of an emotional connection. And then he would throw mm-hmm. us into these scenarios that I didn't necessarily find at that time to be spolen based or anything because it really didn't matter. Prior to that, I had no improv training at all. And Bergman used to yell at me, like, stop acting, stop acting, you're acting, stop acting. And he literally said, your method, your training, your method training, I am going to beat it out of you. And I was like, what's the method and how did it get in me? Because I certainly don't know what it is. But prior to, I mean, I've been doing theater since I was 10. But I, again, I had no classes. I was one of those people that that came in, somebody saw a skill set that I had and wanted to hire me to do the show. I'm like, the seat of my pants. So a lot of it was Mm -hmm. seat of my pants. And then it was when I got to to Improv Olympic and certainly Second City that Viola's work had a lot- Was open to you. was, Was open to me. Her book, Improv for the Classroom, uh, was a, a just I, I I have a book where the pages are coming out when I was teaching at the uh, at a Jewish community center and the kids just love that and it's amazing how Viola uh, Gary Schwartz I don't know if you know Gary who Gary Schwartz is yeah uh, Gary mm-hmm. so Gary Schwartz was teaching a workshop at Improvention which is a horrible name for a, 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 a an improv festival in Canberra, Australia. And I sat in on one of his uh, workshops. I sat in, I participated in one of his workshops and, and I hadn't thought about Viola in a long time. And every workshop that every, every exercise that he had is like, Oh, I, I thought I came up with that. All oh, right. No, that was Viola's. I thought I came up with that. Oh, that was Viola's. And Viola is so like, if you mentioned any improviser, a younger improviser, say somebody's doing it, you know, between zero and five years, they don't even know who that person is. Like, <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Let's yeah. do something about that. Yeah. Well, and and that's that's one of the things that I I think is um, an interesting part of your timing. So so after after Geese was it Improv Olympic that you went to first? Yes, I went. I went. I can't remember how I found out about Improv Olympic, but it yeah. it, it could have been the Chicago Reader. They had uh, like improv classes. And I went there and I talked to Sharna. I, I distinctly remember talking to Sharna saying, I just got off of this uh, performing in prisons and I want to take an improv class. And she was doing this this thing with this guy. And I'm like, and I heard of this guy. I don't know who he is. And she goes, great, because you did that. You can go right into Dell's class. And of course, that was Dell Close. And mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea, again, getting thrown in, having no idea what I was doing. And uh, at that time, it was pretty much the genesis of the Herald and uh, long form improvisation. Dell was still Dell was still screwing around with it, but he had Baron's yeah. Barracudas, and that was that was like watching, uh, you know, watching a great watching Rodin and going, oh, that's you know, I don't know anything about sculpture, but here's this guy Rodin, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be inspired by him. Pay, yeah, pay attention to that because because Improv Olympic was originally David Shepard and Sharna Sharna. And had nothing to do with what IO looks like today. No, no. When Dell came in at this time, or when you came in to IO at this moment that you you started there, would you say that the Herald was already developed? Obviously, it's a thing that continues to develop and, and all that. But was it identifiable as that at that point? Or was it still in its 
early, early stages. Oh, no, it was it was clearly defined. It was clearly defined. And, and it certainly isn't what it is now because the Herald back then was 40 minutes long. And the way the Dell would work, I mean, there was, if you sat in a Dell class back then, this guy was newly sober. He was he was brilliant. He was um, just a total a-hole and he didn't care. But he would, you know, and, and so he would come in in the morning. He would come in to class at seven o'clock at night on a Thursday night. And he would go, well, I, um, I was looking at Paisley. So I think we'll talk about Paisley for an hour. And then do do a, do a, do some scenes about Paisley. Yeah, do some scenes about Paisley. And we'd go, all right, man, all right. Um, so we and then we would do a, we would improvise and then we do a Herald. But the Herald was informed by Dell's monologue, um, not in a way that was like an Armando, but it was informed by the, De- the and and he would sit at the back and he would pace back and forth in the back of the theater and he would just yell at you on stage like and again here's another guy who would yell at me go stop acting but remember that we're watching that, that you're seeing Baron's Barracudas which is Pasquese and Brian Crane and Steve Burrows and and like 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 all these excellent improvisers uh, on our Finnegan and and they were custom picked by Dell to yeah. work on this thing so when you watched Baron's Barracudas you're like there's nobody better than that there's and there's still nobody better than that it was magic. Mm. It was like it was like you were watching everybody in that room was say there were 50 people in the room and that would pack that room because nobody else. Keep in mind, there were two improv theaters, maybe three improv theaters in the world with in the world. And, yeah. and that's arguably, of course, but there was right. there was Improv Olympic. There was uh, let's say four Improv Olympic, se- se- Improv Olympic Second City Players Workshop of the Second City and Dudley Riggs up in Minnesota. So nobody knew what what the improvisation was, you know, yeah. that wasn't jazz. So I'm watching these guys and, and, and it was like sitting in a room with 50 people and you're all sharing the same dream. When this is unfolding before you, what are you thinking improv is is going to be for Dave Rosowski going forward? I've never been one to make a plan. I've yeah. never been one to do anything but sit and, and 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 experience what I'm experiencing at that moment. And that's not to say that's not. I, I really had no plan. I had no plan. All that I knew was this was one of the most fantastic experiences journeys that I'd ever been on up to that point. Everybody who was uh, associated with that space at that time, it was Paris in the twenties. It was Prague. It was, it was, it was an amazing uh, time to just be experimenting and living and, 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 and performing and failing and being supported. Chicago has this feeling of, uh, and somebody told me this, I can't remember. Um, uh, they said in Chicago, you do a show and it's awful. Say you do a show and it's awful and you walk off stage and somebody, you know, because people in Chicago are very candid and they'll go, that yeah. was horrible. And then their next <laughs> line is this, when's your next show? Yeah. And you go, okay, great. <laughs> so, so wait, I had no, I had no plan. I had no plan. All yeah. I know was I was, I was, I was seeing this brilliant, man a curmudgeon up there yell at people and scream at people and push people and make people cry and i was doing some i i was aware of the work that i was doing i was doing brilliant work and i was doing awful work and i got kicked off of a herald team and i understood why and and i took a class from donnie DePolo, who was 
the second city teacher and he mm-hmm. set me right on track. But all that I knew was I loved this thing and there wasn't anything like it in the world. Now you said, I think, I think what you said is that it, no one has done it better since. And I, I don't know if that was just to pay those folks a compliment or whether that is in actuality how you feel. If it's the latter, what, what, what does that mean? Uh, let me just, I'll be specific on who, yeah, I totally understand. Uh, I, I, was, I, I was referring specifically to Barons Barracudas. Those people. So uh, to answer the question, I'll go to the latter rather than the former um, yeah. and um, ask the question again. Well, I guess if if that is the best that's ever been done and mm-hmm. it was done at that point in time in the early mid 80s and it hasn't been superseded since, then what uh, what are we doing wrong? Okay, okay, ways? great. I don't think that it's wrong. And, and it's a, another good question that I've thought about a tremendous amount because I see I see the result of what's happening. Form follows function. And, and what that means is this. When, and let me, let me, let me preface this by saying, uh, there's a woman named Sharna Halpern. And if you want to point out who the person is that is really the, put it all together so that you and I can have this conversation now, so that I right. can travel around. So I, so I have, I have a million frequent flyer miles and it's all, and it sounds weird. It's all because of Sharna Halpern. Sharna opened it up because she connected with Dell and she, and then, and, and then realized how to make this, this art form happen, how to make the Herald happen. It's all on her. That being said, I have also said to Sharna in my podcast, ADD comedy, it's every dusty. I've said, I would not be here if, if it weren't for you. And Sharna in her Sharna-ness went, yeah, I wish other people knew it. It's like, okay, Sharna, I paid you. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, um, that being said, there was a point where so many people wanted to do the Herald that the 40-minute sets that each person could do wouldn't allow enough people to perform on stage. So what Sharna yeah. did was she brought it down to 20 minutes and when that happened, uh, her school started to, to expand too. And so the work that you're, the depth that you would be able to do in a 40 minute Herald, the places that you'd be able to, to go to, the points of view that would change, the, 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 the theatricality of it all became very, um, uh, became very, uh, it, it wasn't happening. Uh, because nobody had the time to explore. Uh, and then the classes started to have 16 and 18 people in it with three-hour class with a 20-minute break. So people weren't being taught what it felt like to experience the uh, full range of emotions a particular character would have. Does that make yeah. sense? So It does, yeah. And, and, and for me, I don't want to be the guy standing on the, uh, you know, standing on the third floor saying, hey, you kids, get off my lawn, or to go, that music that you have is noise. But um, that you love some, turn it down. It's not that. It's like, this is just the way it is. You know, and the toothpaste is out of the tube. And so I, I think problematically, what ends up happening is the majority of actors who are on stage don't know what it's like because they haven't experienced it to fully um, invest in a character, to fully mm-hmm. feel the feelings they're feeling at that moment. Because there are so many people on stage, they're feeling, get it out, follow the rules, do what you have to do. And there's nobody up there is, not nobody, so few people up there are Mm -hmm. really able to experience what's going on. 
Well, we often uh, can can look back and say that we can stand on the shoulders of giants, and that's why we're able to do this, that, or the other. And human knowledge and uh, accomplishment is progressing. But there is something that goes along with making a discovery yourself and then passing it along to someone else who doesn't have to do the same work to get to that same endpoint but you never fully communicate what it is that your discovery is. And so something can get lost along the way. It can dilute unless someone decides to pursue that discovery within themselves in their own context. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And because we live, because we live in the United States of America, where a lot of what we're doing has to do with capitalism and making a dime. And I understand this because, you know, who who wants to lose money? there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be lost and there are going to be a lot of people who and this is this is what i think is really a drag is mm-hmm. when i was taking improv classes i was taught by actors and now the people that are taking improv classes are taught by improvisers which isn't you know horrible but the thing is like there's a missing there's a missing part to that and these mm-hmm. people are teaching these things and i think very often and and again i don't mean to paint with such a broad brush but this is a feeling that i have Sure. Very often, these teachers don't understand what it is to be an actor. And these teachers also aren't questioning, why do we say yes and? Why can't mm-hmm. we ask questions? Why is it that, why can't we ask questions? Why can't we talk about people who aren't there? These are human traits that people have, and we're teaching these rules, and people are following them. Uh, or they're saying, or they're saying, they're following them, and they're not letting people expand and and creatively evolve Mm -hmm. because they don't know Mm -hmm. how well the aspect that you have focused on has a couple of common threads and some of them you've i mean it's it's very clear in in our conversation any conversation that i've heard with you or on your podcast uh add comedy when you uh talk about the art form this idea of presence and the idea that improv is acting, that the art form is, I don't know, it, in some ways it may be a subset of the theater or maybe just part of the whole of theater. You are you are talking or and teaching with people about acting, but maybe more so presence. Is this in some ways a reaction to the stop acting part of it again that has become a focus because this was where your maybe hardest fought um, discoveries or achievements came from? Uh, Awesome. That's a great question. Um, My life changed when I picked up a book called Buddhism Plain and Simple by Steve Hagen. And what, uh, and this is, this is in my book. What I realized at that moment was I, I, I was, I wasn't speaking my voice because I wasn't being present to the emotional content that I had at that moment. And when I, and then when I started watching other performers perform, I'm thinking you're following rules and I'm watching you act. And because I'm watching you act, I'm not seeing you be real. And because you're doing something that you don't believe in, you're struggling to let, you're struggling to have the creative process continue. There's a break in the flow and the flow and the break in the flow is this you are no longer present to what's happening in that moment. You are now communing and communicating with past, with, with teachers and rules, with guidelines, with, with, with what's hap- happened in your life years ago that have nothing to do with what's happening right now. The people that I love watching are so present and so like eating everything that, that you're, that's being delivered on their plate. And mm-hmm. 
what turn what ends up happening is they are no longer acting a character they are being the character and and i'm not watching them have silly voices or crazy tics or all these things that so many character classes are teaching people they're just they have a point of view they're holding on to it they're present to the emotional content that they have so when emotionally they're changed they change and be, and watching somebody in that watching somebody um, execute that you're on this journey and you're and 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 the audience is a-okay with the whole thing because they're not watching you struggle through this piece and they're noticing mm -hmm. everything that you're noticing and an improviser cannot be the last person on stage to notice that something happened they have mm -hmm. to be the first one and the audience has to have a laugh saying oh my god i did see that or oh my god i did feel that and then that actor up there said that um, what role does the audience play in that process or does it play a role i for me you know when i hear when i hear you know people say well we have we we owe an obligation to the audience i i just i i jump all over that i'm like i'm sorry we don't we just don't that we got they they they're in, they're in, they're there to watch us. They're not brought in like a group of prisoners and they are forced to watch us. They're there to see who it is that we are and to be part of that process by being voyeurs. What I encourage actors to do is to express themselves emotionally because you're in the light and the audience is in the dark. The audience is in the dark watching you. They paid $15 to be voyeurs. So your obligation is essentially to be voyeur meat and give them something to talk about. And the way that we do that is I don't take suggestions. My, I don't take suggestions. It's not like I'm coming up with ideas on the car on the way there. My suggestion right. is my first line of dialogue is watching my partner. How is she sitting in that chair? What's her shape? What is she telling me when she sits down or stands? What does that tell me? So I'm improvising right from that moment at that time. So to answer your question, um, they're there to watch us. So then why is it important to have the presence, the unfettered openness that comes with being open and unencumbered on stage? I think it has very little to do with the audience and I think it has 100% to do with your partner for us to at that moment commune with whatever it is that we're talking about together you and i when we're in an improv scene together that's the thing that they're watching they're watching two two they're watching two artists create a play in real time in front of you and 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 the importance of being in the moment doesn't have necessarily the audience can watch me do that but this really has sure. to do with my partner's input my partner's point of view my partner's emotional uh, uh, content and and, and that's all. The other side of that is equally important. What are what are things that you do to give your scene partner the comfort of being open and present uh, in front of you? I'm listening to every single thing that they're saying and I'm responding to, I'm, I'm listening to everything they're saying, everything they're doing, and I am going to verbally uh, acknowledge that. And the moment that you do that, it puts the partner, your partner at ease because I'm not asking you to do something that, that you don't know to do. One of the beautiful things about improvisation is when you and I step on stage at the same time, both of us have the exact amount of information right. at the same time. And with, there is nothing like that in human experience. So if you and I go to a movie and you go, oh, you know what, 1917 is a good movie. I'm like, I don't know anything about it. And we go to the movie. 
you know more about the movie than I do. Right. But when you and I are doing an improv scene and we step out there and we're in it together, it's like we are. And, and so how do I how do I how do I communicate that with you? It's like I communicate it through the feeling that I'm feeling in that moment and express it. And you go, oh, yeah, as opposed to entering a scene, doing the rules, which are thanks, Carl, for coming down to Pamplona. I know that you are here to watch the running of the bulls. And I know that your wife is an astronaut and it's your mm -hmm. birthday. And by the way, where's my money? So we satisfy the who, the what and the where in the scene. We're telling a right. story. But now I've loaded you up with all of that stuff. And it's a burden. But the present, I'm sorry, one more thing. The present, the present moment is not a burden. It's a gift. I came across this recently. Uh, do you know the Jahari window? It really sounds familiar. I'm going to say no so that your, your, your fellow <laughs> listeners can understand it in real time. <laughs> Okay. Well, it, it is a it is a four square. So try to picture this yeah. audibly here. So, um, but it's a simple one. It's the idea is that there are things that you know about yourself and things that you don't know about yourself. Mm -hmm. That's on one side, and on the other side of the four square, are things that are known to others and things that are not known to others. So the things that are known to self and known to others are the, uh, about you. And we're just talking about the individual. We'll just put this on the context of the improviser. Mm -hmm. That's what's uh, viewed as in the arena. That's in the public sphere, things that we all know about Dave Rosowski, let's say. Mm -hmm. The other part that's known to you but not known to others is the facade that you create. Mm -hmm. On the other side, things that are known to others but not known to you are your blind spot. And the last, not known to you or to others, is the unknown. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is what I want to, I guess, poke at you. And this is a new, newer concept to me. So I, I have, by the way, I have, I have heard this. I have heard this before. But yeah. you were kind enough to let the, uh, the ignorant and the listening audience the opportunity well, to catch up with us. It's right? that, it's also, it's that it's also, I want it. I want you to use your words so that when we continue sure. to communicate, we have a shared inventory, but I, right. but you're absolutely right. Yes. Right. So, so we've, we've got these different characters and, or a different, um, quadrants. And when, I think of improv, I think of it as a personally revealing process, both for myself and those that I work with. And one of the goals I would say that I have in doing improv is to learn about myself and others and to connect more deeply with others on stage. And when you are able to discover parts about yourself that you don't know, or when you're able to reveal um, maybe your lack of knowledge and be aware of when a topic comes up that you know, you know, you, you kind of hide the ball on some aspect of yourself, which I think is something that people, when you talk about voyeurism, they want to know more about the facade and the unknown and the blind spots in our lives and those are things that we are are probably most protective of and least present about. That's a long run up. This is probably way too long of a question, which mm -hmm. is a problem of mine in this podcast. No, I'm following through. I'm following you. But but I'm curious as to with that if if that makes sense, that construct of the Jahari window, when you put that on stage, is there an element of where you're trying to push yourself to be perhaps more revealing than you otherwise would on, in a, you know, sort of a dinner party setting. What arose from, uh, from what you just said to me 
is the idea of ego. And it's the Eckhart Tollean ego as opposed to the, uh, the Freudian ego. Yeah, um, so okay. the Eckhart Tollean ego is, it's that, that niggling voice that you have in your head that says you're good, you're bad, you're right, it's wrong. You have something to protect yeah. yourself. You don't have anything to protect yourself. When I get up on stage, I have nothing to protect. I, have, I, don't, I don't have the ego. I'm not afraid, to, I'm not afraid to, to, to have my character be vulnerable because I'm acting. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid for my character to say something that David wouldn't say because I'm acting. And I'm going mm -hmm. to be in connection to what my partner is saying. And I have discovered my voice. And my voice is this. I am an emotionally connected individual. And so when I'm on stage with somebody, I am going to keep going, keep digging for David's soul deeper and deeper and deeper. So the, it, it's not, obviously it's not, it's a, not a, a challenge that I'm going, today I'm going to find a different facade uh, or a different facet of myself. What I'm doing is I'm going, oh, I've never said that before. I've never experienced that. Mm -hmm. I've never failed. I've never I've never failed in that direction. And this all goes back to the idea of this. And I know it sounds contradictory to what I'm saying, but all improv is acting. So when I'm up there, I am acting. I am acting what this character is doing. I am acting what this character is going through. So if I have, if, if I'm not worried about my ego or my reputation or a goal that I really need to accomplish, then yeah. it's open to me. And I don't know if that answered your question. Well, I, th I think it does. And I think that is one of the things, I mean, you know, it, it does have a certain contradictory feel to it because I've also heard you use the phrase that, uh, you know, when you're in an improv scene, you're acting and acting is pretending. And so you shouldn't, oh, I, I don't know, you shouldn't make it more than it is. Um, you shouldn't force yourself to, to be one way or the other because you are free to be whatever you want. You, you're, you're free to be, you're free to be whatever's needed. It's not whatever I want. It's whatever the scene wants. Well, and okay, so that's that's a that's a interesting dichotomy. Then, if we look at when you have the two scene partners, now we've got a third character that may be driving the purpose of the the product. Oh, certainly, there's something called yeah. the scene, and the scene is in the scene is in charge of the scene. The scene is what drives the scene, and I'm just along for the ride. So when you and I are together in this thing, it's not my idea. It's not your idea. It's our idea. And our idea is another another name for our idea is the scene. The scene wants us to go here and we're going to go there. So then outside of the classic, you know, Webster definition, then how do you define what the scene is? The scene is what's happening in that moment. The scene is that's what's happening. The scene is what's happening in that moment. Well, um, let me see if I can run at this. Not that I'm dissatisfied with your answer. Well, I, 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 can I can refine it if you want. Well, here, here's what I'm trying to get at, I think, a little bit, is if we think of, um, like like some people will talk about, like I think of uh, Paul Valancourt's uh, Triangle of the Scene, where he talks about basically two characters having a point of view in a certain context, and those points of view kind of rub up against each other. Is the scene the presence and openness of the two performers, for lack of a better term, kind of in, intermixing or rubbing up against each other in a way that just plays out as whatever's happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The two characters on stage are driven by two actors underneath those characters who are going at each other. And that's what gives us pressure, tension, and dynamic. And that's what keeps the scene moving forward. Mm -hmm. So when you and I are in a scene together and you say to me, my character's name is Carl, and you say, Carl, come over here. 
do I listen to you, the character, or do or am I following what it is that you wit want me to do in order to make that scene interesting? Are you with me on that so far? I, I am, yeah. Okay, so when you say, Carl, come over here and let's start this meeting, if I go yes and, and this is where the yes and comes in, it becomes problematic. If I go yes and to your character, we're going to have to start a meeting, wit, and I don't want to start a meeting. Well, you're yes anding to the words, right? Yes, you're yes anding to the character. You're not yeah. yes anding to the actor. Yeah, okay, and so the actor, this I, I use a micro and macro. The micro to me is the words or the character, the way you're using it. The actor or the improviser is is putting something out there to react to. It's kind of like you know telling the kid eat your spinach. That doesn't mean you have to like the spinach or that you want to have a meeting or whatever it is. Right. If you say, come in, if you say, Carl, come here, pull up a chair, let's start this meeting. And I go, okay, Wit is telling me, grab the chair, pull it in and sit down. That's not what's happening. Wit's yeah. character is asking me to pull that chair and sit down and start a meeting. And you have the right as the character to respond to that how you choose i'm sorry i'm sorry wait 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 i have the right as the actor i'm sorry yes right exactly to respond to that as you choose with perhaps the limit of not withdrawing your presence what, what do you would you be specific on that well, so in the in the classic sense of uh, yes and, if you say I'm not going to have this meeting, that's a denial, right? So okay, but wait, that's, wait, wait. That's a denial of who? The character or the actor? The character. All right. Right. Yeah. So we're we're on the same page so far. Right. And if I say I don't want to have the meeting, that isn't necessarily a denial to the actor because now you and I can deal with the fact that I don't want to have the meeting. Right. And you want to have it. What I can't do is I can't deny the actor from having my presence. What I'm trying to get at here is the idea that if the importance in improv is for both improvisers to be present with each other, then as long as both are doing that, what words come out of their mouth uh, or what emotions they may project at each other, as long as they're connected and present, you can have a scene that works. Well, the question is, when you say each other, what are you talking about? What level it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that, so when, so your question of like, how do I, how do, how does my partner know that I've connected to her? It's like, am I connecting to what it is that she is that that she the actor the artist is mm -hmm. offering me yeah i'm not interested in the story at all i'm not interested in the who the what and the where at all those things for me get in the way that's not to say that all my scenes live in you know some nether world it's to say that i i don't want to be shackled to do the doctor's office scene the the jumping out of a plane scene the uh, proposal scene the i'm breaking up with you scene i would rather say what's our what's our what's our emotional connection just in that moment and then let's determine that later on where we are yeah. or those things will just flow from it without you having to do any work absolutely and what yeah. so in my in my my methodology i'm going to say let's start out connecting emotionally so that when i go so that when we're in a scene together it's clear at the beginning who i'm talking to 
I am talking to, I am talking through my character to the actor. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes. Yeah. So that's vital to me. So let me ask you, if someone was starting today, would you would you view it as a good place to start or a bad place to start to go through the traditional 101, 102, 103, or ABCD process? Or would you rather just jump to presence? Well, my methodology is jump to presence. So my first, mm-hmm. cl- my first class is literally this. Everybody gets around in a circle sitting in chairs and I start to talk and I start to talk about presence. And then I say, in a moment, I'm going to point to two people and whatever shape that they're in, whatever, whatever they're doing with their body at that moment, they aren't to move. And then I'll go freeze and I'll point to two people sitting next to each other. I'll let everybody else get up and look at those two people. And it's amazing that immediately we have a scene just by the way they're sitting, just mm-hmm. by their presence. And, I'll, and my, my side coaching will be, um, do these people have a relationship together? Yeah. Do you want them to look at each other? No. Are you putting words in their mouths? Yes, I am. Are you creating a scenario based around what it is that you're seeing in this moment? Yeah, that's called presence. And then I'll go, okay, my notes aren't, what do you think you need to say? My notes are this, Susan, what are you compelled to say based upon your shape to Bob? And if she's just sitting there, she'll go, I'm angry at you and I don't want to talk to you. It's like, here we go. We got a scene. Now, you're most often teaching to experienced improvisers. Do you do some fresh off the street work? Absolutely. I have people come to my class because when my workshops are set up, people will say, what level, you know, what what experience do people need? I'm like, they don't. Anybody can come to my class. Yeah, they need a heartbeat. Well, it's, 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 you need a heartbeat. And, and I don't know how to say this because, but there are some people that come to my class who have, uh, how can I say this? Um, they're not, op- they're not, they're not, they're not emotionally connected to who it is that they are, but you're going to get that. If you're going to get a beginner, a, a, a you know, middle or, yeah. or, or, or somebody yeah. else where somebody wants it. And, and to be honest with you, it, I get a tr- I used to get a tremendous amount of pushback from people because I am asking you to set aside the 101, 201, 301, and just be with me right now. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm asking because I don't feel like if we're going to go through yes and activities, then at some point I have to teach you no. I've got to teach right. you the importance of no. I have to, I, what I want to do is I want to make it so that I am watching two people be human beings on stage at the same time. Yeah. And if you're worried, if I say no in a class, and this is the hardest thing is to get, I would rather have a newbie than have somebody where I got to go, okay, tell them no. And they go, I really have a hard time with that. It's like, see what happens. Tell them no. And what happens, I'm sorry, one more thing is it's amazingly liberating for people not to have to follow those rules and those guidelines because suddenly they're finding their voice. They're allowing themselves to express their emotional content. They are working at each other, with each other, for each other. And they're feeling these feelings that they've never been able to express. They're expressing these feelings that they've never been able to express before. Yeah, certainly not on stage because they felt constrained by a rule. Clearly. 
Well, I think that's the thing about, you know, doing improv for a while, um, I, you know, where where it turns, I guess, depends on how many reps or how many years or how much life experience you have. But every improv rule has a breaking point and it has the the opposite is often also true um, and it gets in the way. So the importance of the rules are usually to help you be more present, but if but the rules are also something that will keep you from being present or free. And that gets in the way too. Well, for me, the most important, again, to answer your question, uh, yeah. the most important thing for me is to be, be present in that moment, just to be present and to recognize your point of view. And your point of view is whatever emotional expression you had at that moment. That's your point of view. Hold on to your point of view until that beat is over and then realize that you've been emotionally changed and that's your new point of view. And that, mm -hmm. that requires you to understand what presence feels like and the power mm -hmm. of the presence. We haven't uh, talked at all about your time at Second City, and you were, were there quite a while with some amazing experiences and people that you worked with, and you were an artistic director there for a, a long stretch as well. Yeah, in LA, I was the artistic director of Second City, uh, what is now called Hollywood. Okay, for uh, t 10 years Around or that so, time, nine or 10 years, yeah. Yeah. And you had uh, some teachers there who I know were very impactful for you. Knowing that, you know, in terms of the time we have, what what impact did that experience and that school of improv have on you and where you're at today in terms of your methodology and philosophy of improv? That's where I learned how to be an actor was a second yeah. city. That's where I learned uh, what character is, what uh, what point of view is. That's where I learned patience and timing. That's where I learned how to collaborate at the second city. And it also, uh, having had so many teachers who again were actors, first and foremost, that's where I learned the power of theater. And what's interesting is you, you, you said something that a lot of people say, and that is, um, you call it Second City an improv school. And well, it's, yeah. Well, yeah. let me just say this. No, go ahead, go ahead. It, it's not. Yeah. Second City is not an improv theater. Second City is a theater. It's part of the League of Chicago Theaters. You can win essentially what's, an, what's a, it's a Joseph Jefferson Award, uh, which is the Chicago equivalent of a Tony Award. Okay. And you are up there with Steppenwolf Theater Company, some of the finest companies in Chicago, if not the world. And, and so I learned how to create a natural character. I learned that the larger you play your character, the harder it is for anybody else to connect with you and how mm -hmm. a large character will, is, is sort of like you're directing action. And what Dell said uh, about, uh, because of course Dell was part of, you know, was there at the genesis of the second city. His, his note about character is really phenomenal. He said, uh, play your character like, you're, like a straw hat lightly on your head and when you play your character with that that feeling uh, when, when you're expressing it that lightly people can really connect with you and that was a major part of it in terms of second city having its own about improv that is kind of be it does seem like it's behind the scenes and maybe a little difficult to unravel if you haven't gone through the the, the classroom experience, but it is a driver for content creation. Mm -hmm. In terms of the 
acting part of it, the things that you're talking about or, or patience or, or what level of character to play, those kinds of things. Is that something that you felt you got in the doing of the product that you were you participated on as, as a performer at Second City? Or is that something that is pushed in the curriculum itself? It's a doing that's pushed by the teachers who are expressing the curriculum. Yeah. And the major part of that is the teachers. The linchpin is the teachers. It's the people mm -hmm. that are there that guide you, that direct you both literally and figuratively to own what it is that that mean that to own what it what a what a what a character means to own what a beat means they're there to connect you so it's mm -hmm. it's it's learning by doing uh you know and as we're talking i'm thinking i'm realizing more and more and more and more that that's how i learn i learn by doing if we're going to sit in a class it's going to drive me crazy um but right. if we're going to you know I'll, I'll i'll give you a little bit of sitting because i i'm a talker I'm a talker in my class and I'm a talker in my class because because what I, I feel like what I'm saying requires me to express myself in a way that you have an understanding of what it is that I'm doing because I'm going to be I'm going to be challenging you. And mm -hmm. I've realized that if I don't have this little chat at the beginning, you're not going to know where it is that I'm coming from. And uh, a lot of a lot of my methodology is does come from certain teachers that are there that I can directly pinpoint what it is that when I say one particular thing, that's a Michael Gelman thing to say. Or when I when my spirituality comes through, that's a Martin DeMott thing to say. Mm -hmm. When my subversiveness comes in, that's a Jeff Michalski and Jane Morris type of thing to say. And these are all teachers that I've had. But they were all, and the great thing about Second City is, at least it was back then, is the teachers that you had, you were able to be in class with them in the afternoon and then watch them in a show at night, uh, exemplifying of what it is that their that their their voice is, and to go, oh, okay, great, great, I get yeah. it, I get it. They're they're walking the walk, and I think there are a couple books out now where there are there are schools that are teaching you essentially a tome worth of information, and then when you watch them on stage, you're like, oh, you're not doing what it is that you you're teaching. Well, and that, yeah, that's disconcerting. It can be. So with the things that you do, you know, with you traveling uh, all over the place, doing uh, festivals and conferences and theaters bring you in from all over the place, you can find out a lot about that information and uh, what you do on your website at uh, davidrozowski.com. Mm -hmm. You've got links to the podcast there. You will, I'm sure, have uh, information about how to get the book. And maybe we should touch on that in just a second. But one of the things that I noticed on your website that's a, a few years old, and actually I guess it goes back almost 10 years now, are some Rosowski-isms, uh, some notes uh, that you got from one of your students' evaluations. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing there's some of them that have a trace back to those that you worked with. Uh, and some of them are kind of familiar phrases that I feel like have, have certainly sprinkled out generally. But with, with those, are there, are there um, teachers that kind of hearken uh, to your mind that you feel like you might more reflect or connect with? Um, the experience is more like your classroom experience when you were with so-and-so as opposed to someone else? Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, we're we're such students of this um, art form, and uh, so I used to have a drop-in class uh, in LA, and that drop-in class was 
solely based on Dell's class and all that I got out of that. Um, but that's just in terms of structure. Yeah. In terms of philosophy, where I'll say, I think I kind of mentioned it earlier, uh, the idea of I'll say something and I'll go, oh boy, yeah. Or here's, here's a, more along the lines of this. If I'm seeing a student and I feel like they need a note that right now they're struggling with something, I will go, what teacher that I had expressed what it is that this student needs in a way that I can repeat so they can own that gift that I learned again, to be on the shoulders, the shoulders of, of giants. So yeah. if it's something where I feel like it's a spiritual thing that they're not getting, or they're, 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 um, they're judging themselves, that would be a Martin DeMott ism. And Martin DeMott yeah. was the guy that started the second city training center in Chicago. And, and, you know, he's, He's the late Martin DeMott. And he would say things mm -hmm. like, the moment that you walk into this room, you lose all right to judge yourself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, nobody ever followed, uh, uh, joined a march where the banner was onward to mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Like these are wonderful notes that, that, that I've, I've used in my class, whether I've said it literally or I've paraphrased it because I'm so connected to the emotional, the emotional aspect of what people are doing. I really go towards those teachers who have taught me how to express myself in a very simple, kind, vulnerable way. Let me ask you about maybe a couple of these, just to ask you to expound upon them. Uh, so one of one of the notes, everything you need is in your partner's face. Yes. Um, if we're paying attention to what it is that our partner, it, where, where their eyes are, where their lips are, where the like gestures that they have, facial gestures, we are always going to get an answer. We're always going to know where it is that we are. If I'm ever lost and I'm in, in, in a scene, which doesn't happen very often, but it it happens every once in a while where I'm lost and I have no idea what I'm doing. I just look in my partner's eyes and I think, and I feel what it is that she's offering me with her eyes, with her face. And if it's like, I know you're, if, if face saying is I'm lost too, if that's what she's saying, then mm -hmm. I'll look and I go, I think you're lost too. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're connected and there's not mm -hmm. this big elephant in the room. That's essentially the elephant on the side, pain on the side of the elephant is plot or idea or thought or expectations. It's like, Oh no, that elephant doesn't matter. Everything I need is in my partner's eyes. And what has turned into it because I've, I've studied the viewpoints, something called the viewpoints is it's in my partner's shape. It's how close I am to my partner. It's what gestures they have. It's like, are they moving around a particular tempo? All these things, like all oh, my answers are there. And what that also says is no scene was ever saved by the addition of plot. If you want to connect to your partner, Plot is going to get in the way. So let's just say, how do we connect best? Like, how is she sitting? What is she looking? Does she, is, how far away is she from me? And what does that feel like, the, the spatial relationship that we have in that moment? Uh, another one that's, uh, that's a different one, and I'm curious to hear how this uh, dovetails, or maybe it doesn't, look for the shiny object. Yeah. So I've mentioned the viewpoints and there are nine viewpoints and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, uh, to go into each one of them. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. This is kind of a dance construct. Yeah. It's based on uh, Mary Overly was a choreographer and she would watch uh, dancers and from watching dancers, she came up with seven viewpoints. And then these other two women, it's always women, man. It's always women. Uh, Anne Bogart and Tina Landau uh, took those and, and, and added two more. So there are nine viewpoints. And uh, without getting into detail about many of them, they, I know this sounds like, how could this be hyperbolic, but they, they, they codify everything that you do, not just in, not just in the world of, imp right. of improv, but in your life. So one of those is something called kinesthetic response. And kinesthetic response is essentially 
uh, when when you hear when someone says your name, you, you turn. When you smell, uh, you know, whatever food you love, you want some. You know, when when someone you love enters the room, it takes your breath away. Like those are emotional shiny objects that we get to we get to connect to mm. the moment that a shiny object comes into a scene. So the phrase that I have that I've taken from you know because a lot of these 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 things that I say are modified and that's not my, you know, father shiny object. I don't think that's, that certainly isn't mine, but I, yeah. but the, the one that I've been using this is a crow follows a shiny object. A train just keeps going in the same circle over and over and over again. So I want my actors to improvise like a crow, not a train because a train you know, has it stops at the same spot, same spot, same spot. A crow will look at something and be moved and will give that attention. And the chances are, if it's a shiny object to you, it's a shiny object to the audience. And if you neglect to connect with that, the moment that comes up, it's a disappointment and it's a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. Let me put one more uh, to you from this list. Trust in the trust. <laughs> I don't really, uh, I, I, I think I've probably uh, moved on from that. Um, oh, okay. All right. Uh, well, uh, well, trust. <laughs> and if so, if so, why? Well, I, um, I'd be interested. Uh, one of the reasons is I don't, I'm, I really, because again, this guy wrote, a guy or woman, I have no idea who it was. He just gave me this gift of four pages, both sides of things that he's heard me say. I think trust in the trust means this. If you are emotionally connected to what it is that you're feeling in that moment, trust it. If you know that you are going to have a good show, trust it. If you know that you're going to connect with your partner, trust it. If you feel that this is the right thing to do, trust it. The only thing we know, the only thing we own, the only thing that drives us is trusting that, we, we, that what we're feeling is exactly what we need. And I think that that's what it is. I, I, the word hope... I gotta tell you, I, I just, I, that's, I, I don't like that word. Uh, I don't use that word. I think it's a victim's game and it's a victim word. I hope that a safe doesn't fall on me. I hope that we don't get bombed. It's more along the lines of, I trust that we are going to live another day. I trust that this scene is going to be great. I trust that I'm going to know, and this is a Rosowskiism, this is a neo Rosowskiism, although it's old now. <laughs> I trust that I am going to know what I need to know, when I need to know what I need to know. Yeah. And, and because when we're in a scene and you're not trusting where it's going, you're no longer connected to what it, your partner. You're connected to the ego that's connected to doubt and, and screw your dumb doubt. I don't have time for you to, to doubt. And you don't have time for it either on stage. No, right? no. So but, you might as well. And that's what I mean. You know, I, I forgot yeah. who said it, but, but there's this great, you know, um, I, I, it's probably a Buddhist guy and it's in the book. If the sun or moon should doubt, they would immediately go out. It's like, you know what it is you're there for. Just follow through on what it is you're feeling in that moment and let that thing be the thing that drives you, not your plot. All right. So, so in addition to those notes from 10 years ago, uh, I know you have, and I think we mentioned it early on in the podcast, you are at the, the end stages or the, towards the end of the stages of putting together a book of Dave Rosowski's thinking and wisdom and insight about improv in 2020, not in 2010. Can you just kind of set the table, again, the title of the book and what's what's the why behind why you decided to put this book together? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I love it. Uh, the book is called a, a Subversive's Guide to Improvisation. At least that's what it's called now. Um, but okay. uh, if you pay me enough, I will change the title to anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, 
the Goodyear Improv Guide, right? Exactly. <laughs> naming rights available. What, whatever you want. <laughs> McDonald's does improv. That's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons that I that I that I wrote this book, uh, I got a bunch of reasons that I wrote this book, but one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I wanted to I wanted to see improvisers on stage look like real human beings. And I wanted to make it so that there was a sense of flow to what it is that people were saying, connecting to each other, uh, to know that collaboration has to do with surrendering your idea uh, and embracing somebody else's idea. And uh, whenever two or, two or more are, are gathered in, in Dell's name, there is love. So in that way, I wanted to express, I wanted to present a book that says all the rules that we have, they tend to get in the way. How can we make it so that we're just connecting to each other emotionally and allowing ourselves to let the uh, to let the inspiration get to us and allow ourselves to sit in the lap mm -hmm. of inspiration? Because I think a lot of people don't even recognize what that means, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of uh, almost an anti-rule book. Um, it it is an it it, in a, it is an anti-rule book, but. Uh, it's, but not in the sense that they're rules. Well, here's the right? thing. Uh, I think that you realize this. As a teacher, what you know that you can't teach a knot. I can't teach yeah. you what not to do. If I'm going right. to, and, 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 and one of the things that, that happens in, that I've seen it so often in, uh, in a class is a teacher will say, you know what your problem is? You're in your head. Get out of your head yeah. and don't be in your head. And the moment that you go, don't be in your head, it's like, okay, good. That's half a note with the other yeah. half of that note is, where do you want me to go? So if I say there's an anti-rule book, I better say, what do we do without those rules? Yeah. Well, even when we started our conversation and you talked about the the stop acting or however the, whatever the phrase was, I not only heard what you experienced, I I felt the emotion that I think you felt when you got it, which was maybe a little, it stung, it was confusing. Uh, there was nowhere to go with it. And you had to figure out over the course of years where to go with it. Right. Are you, are you able to share maybe just, I don't know, just like a, a, a few of the, the, the chapter subjects or titles that give a flavor for what kinds of things uh, someone that picks up the book are, are going to experience? Certainly, certainly. I've worked really hard on, on those. Um, uh, so uh, Justin, we're talking about rules and there's a, there's a bunch of sections and one of the sections is, it's not about the rules. So it, one of the sections is, uh, and anybody who's done improvisation knows that there are rules that are here. So some of these rules that I, I say, there's a chapter called, these are the chapter titles. So break the yeah. rules, forget the who, the what, and the where. Stop trying to get it right. Forget the plot, the problem with yes and. Stop saying yes to everything. Go ahead, ask questions. It's okay to talk about someone who's not there. And then a beautiful chapter that I really love called Stop Doing These Scenes, which are scenes uh -huh. that any improv teacher that has ever that has ever witnessed it's like oh my god another jumping out of an airplane scene yeah. like another yeah. scene in a dentist's office do we really need that scene so it's 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 that and there's another chapter on on, on how to pick a partner and how to be a good partner uh and and what i feel like are these are things that aren't necessarily taught in any school they may be mm -hmm. taught but we're getting down to the nitty gritty here and we're getting mm -hmm. and, and we're connecting. And it's all about, for me, it's all about how do we keep the emotional flow? How do we keep the emotional flow and how do we work on the idea that it, it, this is it? We have no prop, we have no costume, we have no set. So what is it that we have? We have our inspiration and the idea of feeling that inspiration together and, and, and recognizing where inspiration comes from. 
and really using it. And may I read a chapter about inspiration? Yeah, okay. yeah, a, right. a little sneak peek. It's a little sneak peek. And keep in mind, I've never done this before, but here we go. And the, the chapter title is called Embrace Inspiration. Ah, inspiration. It wakes you up in the middle of the night with a great idea, taps you on the shoulder while you walk up a flight of stairs, keeps you awake past any sensible bedtime because inspiration doesn't give a good gosh darn about sensible. A revelation comes while you stand in the TSA x-ray thingy. It provides the perfect solution to a problem you've been struggling with. Inspiration never sleeps, has no sense of time, knows no enemies, and won't be stopped, governed, or restrained. It's like a lion lurking, waiting to pounce. Inspiration doesn't cotton to judgment, prejudice, doubt, cowardice, or uncertainty. It's a raging beast. How often have you talked yourself out of an idea because you thought it was dumb, impossible, or too hard? Why is your first thought, no, I can't do it? It's your ego talking, and nothing good ever comes from the partnership of ego and inspiration. Ego sabotages inspiration. It doesn't like to be challenged. It wants you to be safe, silent, dormant, quiet, hidden, and resigned. It tells you your life will never get any better, so just shut up and eat your oatmeal. Allow inspiration to eat doubt for lunch. That's wonderful. It sounds like it sounds like a, a great book. And and where are you at at this time? What what do you think is a timeline knowing that that can change at any time for when this might be released? I have no idea. I don't know how this works. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, and um, I do. I, you know, my editor Vera Cole, who's just wonderful, and if anybody's looking to have a, an editor, I cannot recommend her highly enough. I recommend her highly. Yes. <laughs> so we're, uh, uh, this is all new to me and it's new to her, uh, although she is a, a very good editor. I don't really know. I want, I want, this, I want this out certainly by uh, the summer. Okay. Uh, I would love for it to be out by the summer, but the, the finding a publisher is a uh, finding yeah, a publisher. It's a bear. Yeah. It's a bear. I mean, it's, again, it's part, of the, it's part of the process. And uh, I'm such a, the product of, I know the product of improvisation is the process of improvising. So I think the product of writing a book is the process of writing the the process mm -hmm. of writing the book. So I've waited this long. I'm ready to wait longer. Yeah. Uh, but what I would like is I would love to have my days back uh, where I'm not writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where you don't have to hit so many words per day or something right, like that. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, I also want to say, I also want to say this, um, just in regards to writing, if there's something that you absolutely love and you, and, and you just like, you love it so much and it means so much to you, the best way for you to hate it is by writing a book. About it. <laughs> well, I don't get the sense that you, you're done then. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was always, I'm always talking to, to, you know, if somebody says, well, how's your book? I'm like, it's 80% done. And it's always, uh, wit, it's always 80% done. It's always 80% uh, done. Always 80 done. And, and then, then it'll with, be out there and it'll be 80% done, but it'll be out there. It's, and, it's amazing how 80% is actually 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes that at some point. And that's right. enough. That's enough. Okay. Well, I'll that's look enough. forward to reading it. Maybe we can uh, circle back after it is out and had a chance to digest it. But uh, Dave Rozowski, I really appreciate you taking the time to spend talking about all things improv and life and so much more. I uh, really have enjoyed having you on the Improv Comedy Connection. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Whit. I was excited at the beginning of the conversation, and I'm excited about it at the end. There's a lot to chew on in this episode, but let me suggest two specific takeaways. First is the importance of presence. Every improviser at some point goes through an internal or external dialogue about being in their own head. And as Dave said, get out of your head is only half a note. 
It tells you what not to do, while Dave's focus is on what to do. And that can be summarized in the phrase he used, be with me. Be present with your scene partner. Be present with yourself. Be present in the scene and in the moment, and don't shrink back from it. The second takeaway involves the importance of acting and the role of the actor. There's almost a bit of a lament from Dave on the reduced emphasis on theatricality. Whereas the first several generations of improvisers were primarily actors, today's improvisers are trained often independent of any theater training. I'm one of those folks, but I'm persuaded that improvisers have to develop acting chops to reach their full potential, and they'll need that in their fellow improvisers as well to produce great art on stage. In the podcast, I stumbled around a little bit with different terminology I've used when Dave and I got into a discussion about the character and the actor. But ultimately, I think we see things the same way on the topic. But here's a nuance that I don't want to get lost in my stumblings. There is a connectedness between the actors that will drive scenes forward. Ideally, while you're acting as your character, you're also working and playing and creating together with your scene partner as an actor. Maybe there's a duality to the presence involved in that experience, but think back to those moments where your improv was soaring and consider how much of that was the funny thing you said and how much was elegant playfulness and connectedness between you and your fellow improvisers. Be sure to look up Dave at davidrozowski.com and watch for him coming to a theater or festival or conference near you to get that deeper dive. Or move your podcast dial a couple channels to the left to ADD Comedy with Dave Rozowski to catch some great conversations that Dave has had over the years with some amazing guests. I hope we'll get a follow-up conversation after his book, A Subversive's Guide to Improvisation, comes out. But grab your copy quickly when it does. Again, this is the final episode of Season 1, and I hope that this episode and the season as a whole has been really helpful to you. It's really been a great experience for me, and not just the conversations in the podcast itself. The interactions I've had with you kind folks listening has made this really way, way more rewarding than I had anticipated. I really appreciate the notes and the comments and the shares and the general kindness that you've shown to me in this little venture. Season 2 is already shaping up to be great, so I hope you'll continue to check in with the Improv Comedy Connection and send any and all feedback to me at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy, and your feedback really helps me do that better. Thanks for letting me be a part of your comedy and improv journey as your host on the Improv Comedy Connection. My name again is Whit Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Whit Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm also on Snapchat at WShillDog, but I'm not super interested in taking lame selfies of myself. Either way, I think you're fully caught up on me and social media if you've been listening all the way through each episode. Thanks again for tuning into the Improv Comedy Connection, and we'll see you soon with Season 2.